Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Richmond Bigfooty Tigercast. I'm your host Michaels and we have a very special guest with us tonight. He is the staff writer for Good Weekend, a Richmond tragic and the author of Yellow and Black, A Season with Richmond, Conrad Marshall. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. No worries at all. It's, uh, you're a legend now. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but um, I've, you know, I've been in an enviable position for a couple of years for sure. At the very least, you're a lucky charm now. Uh, well, yeah, let's hope so. Although I wasn't so lucky in 2016, and it was with the club then. That's that's often forgotten. That's right. It matters about the year that you wrote about. That's fine. Um, <laughs> before we get stuck into the book, you're obviously a, a Tiger man. What uh, what led to you following Richmond? Um, look, I don't remember exactly other than uh, when I was about four or five, I think I picked Fitzroy for a week or two just because I liked the idea of a lion I thought it was a pretty ferocious sort of creature and then I saw what I'd chosen the lion's colours this red and blue and yellow and I was like that's not very fearsome and doesn't sort of suit the animal and then someone told me about the uh, the tigers and yellow and black and it just seemed so much more vicious and menacing and um, so I saddled you know hitched uh, myself to that wagon um and that would have been, what, 1983? So, yeah, uh, yeah it seemed like a, a mistake for quite a while after that. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, definitely a long time. Um, what, what is your earliest memory of being a Richmond supporter? Um, look, it was probably just um, being brought to, uh, to tears by my brothers. I, I have um, three brothers, and one of them... My oldest brother is a, an Essendon supporter. Uh, my immediate younger brother is a Hawthorne supporter. And so they spent the entirety of the 1980s kind of fighting over premierships while my team was um, winning wooden spoons and sort of imploding. And so, you know, brothers mock one another and they were pretty merciless about it. And so I vividly remember sort of uh, just <laughs> tears 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 as my team got flogged and um i think my dad once told me you go back in there and you tell your brother that richmond won 10 flags and they're and you know they're a great club and i did and my big brother had it ready and loaded that essendon had won more flags so it only sort of made it worse but uh look football wise i i think probably first memories are around um jeff hogg you know i really um loved the way that he could sort of stand up and even kick 10 goals in a game despite playing for uh you know what was then a pretty mediocre side absolutely and uh the passion for writing where did that first start and how did you get into it all yeah, I think I was <clears throat> uh, okay as an Eng- English student at school, um, but as far as sort of getting into journalistic writing, I um, I did a few different degrees, one in um, arts and sort of psychology and philosophy, and then uh, did a graduate diploma in PR and, and a master's in communications and media, and, and then I ended up working for uh, Monash University and their alumni department and PR department, public affairs. And very quickly, I realised that the part of that job that I liked the most was writing stories about the people at the university and seeing them printed. There was sort of there's a nice thrill in having um, in having a byline and seeing your words in print and sort of being creative in in that way, even though it was a corporate comms sort of job. And and that's ultimately what kind of led me to. Uh, to journalism proper, uh, which I started doing in the US and did for eight years before before coming back here. Okay, it's a pretty extensive and, I mean, it's a pretty tough industry to get into, so you're obviously doing, doing pretty well for yourself. Yeah, I've had a bit of luck along the way. I sort of uh, just got into it over in the States where you have a lot of 
a lot of sort of smaller newspapers, but broadsheet ones, and um, you know, I was able to kind of hop from smaller paper to medium paper to bigger paper over there, and then came back and as you say it's very hard to get in so even after eight years of being a full-time journalist in the states i didn't immediately walk into a newspaper job here i I had to go back to pr for a year and eventually found my way to the age through a a kind of back door or side door with a, a job with the melbourne magazine which was great and um and then sort of moseyed on over to the age uh, proper and then eventually uh, about two years ago now almost um, landed my dream job writing for good weekend magazine I'll tell you what you get a job anywhere you want now with the success of this book <laughs> so no need to worry anymore <laughs> speaking of the book where did the idea come from was it your original thought or was it someone that maybe suggested it to you along the way and you just sort of run with it how did it all come about i think it had always been a bit of a dream like i i used to read really great sports writers in america there's a very big and sort of rich tradition there of of journalists doing these kinds of insider accounts of um of sporting teams so i'd read like david halberstam on um on the portland uh, trailblazers the, the the book was called breaks of the game and then um john feinstein with um season on the brink um his his story about or his, his year with uh, bobby knight the, the hoosiers basketball coach in um, college level and i'd read those kinds of books and, and my favorite book was probably friday night lights about sort of suburban high school footy and so i'd always had it in the back of my mind that i'd like to write a book about a season in a um in an afl club and for quite a while there i just sort of put it out of my mind that it would even be possible at a place like richmond knowing or any afl club really knowing that they close ranks and don't really want to open up their doors so i I remember making a very sort of limp approach about a decade ago i think i just sent off an email with some writing samples and then didn't bother following up and, and i didn't hear anything back um and I thought briefly about doing a book on a on a um, a country football club. So I have a lot of family members from Winchelsea uh, past along, and thought maybe I could write a uh, a Friday Night Lights style book about um, about a season with the Winchelsea Blues, you know, in the um, in the Colac and Otways or Geelong League out there. And then the Richmond book itself. I guess it just came about after the elimination final, the the third one, the loss to North Melbourne. Um, That was pretty rough. And I remember the next morning, though, waking up and sort of still feeling optimistic about the team. So I I wrote a column for The Age about how I thought... uh, And I just dashed this off in the space of an hour. And it was basically about how I don't think you know, we need to be uh, microwaving our memberships just yet that the team has, um, you know, shown consistent improvement over the, the five or six years under Hardwick at that point. And, you know, we'd made it into finals three years in a row, even if we were bundled out. And there's a lot of green shoots and youth in the list. And um, I was convinced that they were going somewhere good. And so I, I don't know, after I'd written that and got a nice response from a lot of Richmond fans... I um I just decided to sort of flick a link um, to that story off to the communications director at Richmond, Simon Matthews, and mm-hmm. just suggest to him that, look, I think Richmond are on the verge of something, and um, I think it'd be great to write a book about that. This is what I sort of have in mind, but you might have something different in mind. Maybe we could get together and have a coffee and a chat. And, uh, and he was good enough when I placed a follow-up phone call to sit down with me, talk about it, he was really interested in story and i think he saw richmond the team in the same way that i did 
uh, and very quickly um, the message got back to Damien Hardwick that um, that there was this idea, this writer out there that wanted to put together a book and I think again just serendipity, luck, whatever, um, Dimmer had that year or that off season been reading a book about the New York Jets, um, a writer, a former Sports Illustrated writer, New York Times writer, embedded himself with the Jets for a year and wrote a, a great book about gridiron called Collision Low Crosses. And um, uh, I think, yeah, just, just luckily, Hardwick had read that, loved it, and thought that'd be a great idea. So oh, yeah. once the coach buys in, you know, they're like the sun around which um, the rest of the the rest of the, the club solar system sort of orbits. Um, and so everything just kind of fell into place and I, I joined the, the club at the start of um, the 2016 pre-season. So when you did join the club, were you obviously formally introduced to the staff and players prior to starting and were there any nerves or awkward moments in the early stages when sitting in meetings and requesting access to players and things like that? Yeah, they were definitely. So I was, um, I mean, I met quite a bit of the hierarchy beforehand. We had to get sign-off from the board, so I'd met Brendan Gale and... Um, and I'd met um, Dan Richardson and a few of the senior assistants like um, like Choco and um, Tim Livingston, the coaching director. But then came, yeah, that first day and it was like, this is Conrad. He's going to be writing a book. Um, he's going to be here most of the season, um, you know, speaking to a lot of you. And then that's in front of all of the players and the coaches. And they give you a round of applause and make you feel welcome. But at the same time, you don't know any of them and they don't know you, particularly me, because I'm not a sports writer. I wouldn't be familiar to them for the most part. Uh, and then you just have to sort of feel your way. And that meant kind of negotiating with people in the club. So, I don't know, it's often written or been said about this book that uh, it was unfettered kind of access all areas as if I had this free pass to just walk around the club now. I sort of did have a free pass to walk around its halls, but lots of meetings and scenes that I wanted to capture really had to be negotiated. So, okay. for instance, um, very early on, I had heard about the leading team's method that they had for um, for player feedback, you know, kind of um, harsh, harsh uh, way of going about it. Um, <clears throat> there's a chapter in the book about Jack Rewalt and um, him and his session uh, standing up in front of the group and having them sort of tell him a bunch of things he needed to stop doing and start doing and keep doing and um, I wasn't just allowed to walk in and out of those sessions willy-nilly I had to sort of broach the topic with people in leadership and say well you know whose meeting would be good to sit in on well probably not this junior guy you know and probably not this guy because the feedback might be harsh we should get you a leader but we need them to agree and and jack agreed you know so there were lots of things like that all the way along that were complex um negotiations and i guess as i sort of built up a little bit of trust as they could see that i was learning things and these things weren't finding their way out into the public or or to other journalists um yeah they probably realized they could trust me and, and doors just began to open a little bit more and people begin to sort of smile at you and chat to you in the halls and and throughout it all i should mention i'm wearing richmond gear i basically look like an assistant coach you know, i have to wear the the black slacks and then the polo and the shoes and you just yeah you just look like part of the um the football department really and yeah it sort of remained that way uh i guess only getting even even better and more close um throughout two years there 
And I mean, as you said at the start, the players, you obviously got to know a few of them pretty closely over the two years. Did you ever feel like the players behaved differently when you were around? Um, I, I wouldn't say I did. Um, no, because I think they're used to different presences in a lot of these meetings. So even though it's really privileged access to be in, say, the opposition analysis meeting, or the midfielders line meeting on a Tuesday after match review. Um, I'm not the only person popping into those things. Sometimes a board member will be sitting up the back and they'll be introduced. And sometimes someone from development will be there or a comms person will be there or lots of people that aren't specifically part of the football department do often kind of drift in and out of these spaces. Um, And so I don't think it was too... Yeah, I don't think I was in an inhibiting presence by being there. Although, you know, I could be wrong. Um, I've got to remember, I guess, that a lot of those people that were there were just sitting there attentively, whereas I'm sitting there with a notepad and a pen, um, kind of sketching away madly, getting all these details and quotes written down. But uh, hopefully over time, um, as I said, I just became part of the furniture. Did any of them ask you to pump their tyres up in the final copy? <laughs> um, no, they were all um, they were all really good about it too. Like some of the chapters, because there's sensitive material in them, um, I had to, or I didn't have to, but I, I sent them to the players, um, the individual players involved, and just was like, "Look, are you comfortable with with all of this?" I realise there's some stuff that's being aired that you know might be might be sensitive in some way, and to a to a man, not one of them um, wanted any changes made at all uh so a chapter about brandon ellis and his upbringing and um and and the struggles that he'd gone through he was completely open with it all at the beginning and i half expected him to want to attract some of that to to keep it private but he allowed it all in and the same with jack you know i I wrote all about his um his peer feedback session and some of the some of the harsh words that were coming his way and, and he just let it all stay there and um yeah, it was the same for, for all of them. They were really open, um, and I guess the whole club was this year in a way too. That's I mean, sort of part of yeah, their season. And after reading your book, that kind of seemed like one of the big catalysts for the change that took place uh, throughout the year. So it's interesting that they... Yeah, I mean, that, that Brandon Ellis story, that was pretty powerful. Um, so for him to be okay to, to let all that go through, yeah, the, the club was obviously... And the players were very open to anything and everything, which was good. Yeah, that's right. I think it just it starts with them being open with one another and um, players being open with coaches and the, the players and coaches being open with the rest of the footy department. And, um, yeah, if anything, sometimes I felt like they were too open. Like, I'd get a great interview out of somebody at the club that they'd tell me things that were, you know... Um, sort of soul bearing um and then uh and i think yeah i've got this great stuff great material on Koch and the struggles that he went through in 2016 and how it was the the worst year of his life and and then somebody would interview him from uh from the mainstream media and i'd hear Koch saying a lot of the same things yeah. <laughs> and i think why didn't you just why didn't you hold on to that make my book look more like an exclusive but um you know that that's credit to them this year they were just they were open and honest and not just with one another but with the wider world one of the things i found fascinating about the book i mean i've coached football for a few years so the game plan and all and the tactics and the layers involved in creating a game plan it was just mind-blowing to see um what you had written down about that and i've got no doubt there's a lot of stuff in there that you couldn't write how hard was it to get your head around everything they were talking about and how long did it take to make sense of it all oh 
that was, I mean, it's a good question. It was one of the most incredibly difficult things. I mean, there are portions of the book where I, I think, gee, have I gone into too much detail here? Because I, I really want the reader to be able to understand the point that I'm making. Um, but when I tell you that even the most complicated passage or long-winded portion of the book about structures, uh, it would have been three or four times as, as long and complicated as that in person. And I would have just had to cut a lot of material out because it was getting too unfathomable. I don't know how um, those players do it. They look at the screen, this, you know, grainy kind of bird's eye behind the goals view of, um, of the field and, and, and a play from a game that they've seen, that they've been in the week before. And they can rattle, like, and just see instantly who's in the wrong position, where the ball is meant to be going. Um, they can see and read these patterns that are, I don't know, incredibly complicated. And sometimes we're talking about a matter of a positioning. A, a player could be a few metres off and they're, they're looking at it, like I say, from behind the goals and um, and they can just spot it right away. You know, So-and-so is not in the right position to be the trailer or the sweeper or the striker or um, the Brady role or the Trump role or the Obama or M1, the Barry, the Terry, A1, D1, D3. It's like... Uh, and so, I don't know, I, I was totally lost for the first few months. Um, I think even towards the end, I was still mostly lost by a lot of it because I wasn't in the club every day, immersing myself in it the way that the players are. Um, but look, I had to have assistant coaches and tacticians and talent scouts just like sit me down and explain certain points to me, even drawing it up on whiteboards and things like that. And that's probably how the, the players learn it too, largely, you know, by osmosis, just sort of sitting there ingesting it as the senior players are walking them through it but then also a lot of one-on-ones a lot of going over footage and I think yeah that was one of the most eye-opening things for me that was even though Richmond was a team this year that played on instinct a lot and had um, a certain amount of simplicity in some of their their plays like um, like the way they play going forward just tap it scrap it kick it wrench it um, make it you know, go towards the goal at all costs. Um, even though there was simple stuff like that, uh, there was this layer of absolutely complicated stuff on top of it. You really realize, impressive. You realise that the football, no, you'll never be able to watch a game the same way that the rest of us do. Yeah. No, I, I definitely <laughs> feel that way. I, I mean, I still, like I said, I can't gather gather all of it, but I can watch certain games now and I can see who is playing what role I can see how they should be setting up the field and um i always like watching games live you know more so than if i if i can go i'd much rather do that than watch it on tv and um and now i love that even more so because i'll be able to watch what's happening off the ball which is probably came across in the book what's happening off the ball the stuff that you don't see on screen when you're watching it on tv that stuff is crucial to winning the game it was part of what richmond did so well this year setting up the ball um coming out of defense setting up in front of their attack um just placing themselves in front of their opponents and um yeah impressive stuff so i should ring the footy club and try and request a seat next to you then next year so i can just pick your brain <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> Um, in, in 2016, did you spend any time in the coach's box as well, or was that just something you did for for this year? 
No, that was actually just something I did, um, ju- and just the once um, this year. So in 2016, it was, again, see, uh, a lot of people might suspect I was in there every week, and I wasn't. And um, I think we knew so early on in 2016 that um, that there wasn't going to be a book, that by the time I'd sort of thought, hey, maybe I should do my chapter on the coach's box this week, uh, the book was already off limit, like off the table. So... So, yeah, I didn't do that. But, I mean, I, I did sort of lurk around in the coach's box um, both years in the uh, in the pre-season because everything's a little bit more casual there. So I remember sitting in the coach's box out at um, Beaconsfield. Remember when we um, when we flogged the Hawks by about 10 goals out there on a nice sunny day and yep. um, that kind of thing. So I've seen the coach's box a few times, but only once in that regular season heat of battle kind of thing against Melbourne. Okay, and I mean, the the time you did sit in there for this year, that must have been a fascinating experience. I mean, every fan in the world would love to be able to do that. Yeah, and what I learned later was that a lot of um, fans, or not casual fans, albeit, but fans do get to do that. So often there is just this one kind of spare seat in the coach's box, and they will often make it available to a really prominent Richmond booster. So some um, <coughs> somebody who contributes a lot of money money probably through one of the coterie groups um can often find their way in there and, and get that experience but um no look for me it was just uh it was amazing and it was and what a game to do it you know we were really getting well basically beaten up by melbourne in the wet on um anzac eve and we didn't look good we really didn't look good that first half in particular. I think there was some awful stats, something along the lines of 35 inside, 50s to 10 or something along those lines. And then um, and then didn't really look like we'd gotten on top of them in the third quarter. We were still only 20 points down and it felt like we were lucky to be there. And then we surge over the top of them. So I got this real, the twin sense of sort of things going wrong in the box and things going right. Um, and again... <laughs> It's another one of those environments, though, where it's very hard to tell what what orders are being barked down the phone. Like um, people have read the chapter and really enjoyed it, but it's really just ten percent of what actually happened in the box. And I didn't write the other ninety because I probably didn't understand what was happening. It, it read as if the entire coaching crew were fairly calm uh, throughout that game. Like you said, we were behind for a lot of it and playing pretty bad. Is that what it was actually like? They actually did just think it through. They didn't. They weren't angry or um, getting frustrated, they just sort of calmly thought it through and, and, and worked it out that way? Well, I think you're right in that they were calm, um, in that they weren't panicking and there weren't um, sort of people scurrying around, um, you know, rearranging magnets on the Titanic or anything like that. But um, but at the same time, they were very angry or they were very annoyed at the way things were going. Um, maybe there weren't, wasn't a lot of screaming or truly raised voices, but there was a lot of just disappointment and, and misunderstanding and what, why is this happening this way? Particularly sort of these messages going down to the box I've been telling them you know, I've been telling the players do this and they have not done it for, for two straight quarters I think it was, yeah, because it was a wet night for instance, it was um, I remember Dimmer just being really frustrated that they were um, handballing that they were trying to create um, artful sort of handball chains and find their way out of trouble that way instead of just snapping it across their body, just blasting it forward, scraping it forward any way they can. Um, and he was really perplexed by that because they'd made that point even in the pre-game. It's going to be a wet night out there. 
I think uh, Lepich's phrase was, um, when it rains, metres gained. That's yep. what's important, yep. is um, is the territory battle. And the players weren't following that. So that was interesting to see up close, that they've got these best laid plans. There are messages going out to the players, and yet they weren't actually implementing them. And it's funny because as spectators at the ground, people would want them to be doing those precise passes when it's the complete opposite to the message the coaches are given them. But I get why, yeah, when it's wet, don't try and be fancy, just get the bloody thing forward. Yeah, um, yeah, the, it's a very old-fashioned sort of idea, isn't it? It is, but it works. <coughs> I mean, it, it's not rocket science. It's going to be hard to mark, so just get the thing into your forward half and, and deal with it then. Particularly um, with all those smalls, you know? It, oh, exactly, how crucial. A, a big part of your book, and one of the most important chapters, I thought, was a, a, all about the mental preparation that the guys undertook this year. You mentioned in there that it was something they did do a little bit in 2016, what were the major differences between how they went about it in 2016 to 2017? So you're referring to the mindfulness um, yeah. program with Emma Murray here? Yeah. yeah. So um, I think in she came to the club, first of all, in kind of 2015, but just working with a couple of key players. So Dylan Grimes was the very first one. Um, she was working with him because he was having trouble with injury. And then a few other people drifted into the scene, Steve Morris, Sam Lloyd... Um, and then uh, in 2016, you're right, that's when she was sort of formally introduced to the rest of the group. And I would say, again, it was more of a voluntary ad hoc kind of basis that the mindfulness program was used in 2016. So I do remember going in mid-season and there was a, a visualisation and kind of meditation session on on a, a very early morning, kind of like 6.30, middle of winter, and there's maybe a dozen players, including Dustin Martin, sort of laying down in the Morris Rioli room in darkness with their hands over their chests and Emma Murray's walking above them and talking them through their breathing and visualising their best football. So there were large-ish sessions. <clears throat> but what changed in 2017 was this kind of full club um, directive. So the first part of that was that every single player on the list, it was their responsibility to do two individual sessions with Emma Murray. And then if they didn't like it, they could stop. But if they thought they were getting something out of it, they would continue. And um, I think she said probably 80%, you know, four out of five did continue. Uh, then <coughs> there was a much more concerted um, approach to that with lines as well so she would work with um with the defenders they were one of the first to really take it up because it's a lot of emotional maturity and just maturity in general and intelligence in general in that that back line so they took it upon themselves to to champion the the program in a really big way um but all of the lines did in their own way uh, and then it was working with really specific groups sometimes within lines so it might be the small forwards might be the running backman or the key backman um and then i think it was probably actually in fact it was right after the the string of three very close losses um the the coaching staff decided that um that it could be a job for emma murray to work on um these moments these little brain fade moments that might be costing the team those wins and uh and so she started doing full sessions with the group so that means she's standing up the front of the graham richmond room the kind of the tiered um auditorium at tigerland uh and she's having 45 players sit there close their eyes hold out their hands you know breathe deeply um, feel the energy in their fingertips and then walking them through 
passages of play, visualizing themselves, doing the right thing, reflecting on what that feels like, doing the wrong thing, um, reflecting on what that feels like. So, uh, yeah, it was really impressive to witness up close. And look, I, I don't know how much it plays into winning and losing, but even if it's a placebo effect and the players believed that they were getting value out of it, then then that's gold as well. And certainly felt like it uh, like it had an impact on the field. Like, didn't you feel that Richmond were able to just sort of stay in games more this year? I, yeah, I sort of felt right. like that was one of the major shifts. You know, it wasn't just this consistency across the season in terms of our results. But remember how we used to just get we get blown away in the yeah. space of like ten minutes or fifteen minutes. Well, they just yeah, they just go always missing. Be like if, if the opposition kicks, you know, three or four quick goals, there'd always be that overwhelming feeling of, ah, oh, well, here we go again. But this year, it was it was totally different, and it was. I mean, every player obviously bought into this program because it wouldn't have worked otherwise. And to me, that's really impressive, um, especially being a bunch of younger guys as well. You can kind of you get the impression that they might think it's a little bit, you know, funny to do stuff like that, and how's it going to help me? But all of them seem to buy into it 110%, and uh, it's paid dividends. Yeah, sometimes I half think that it worked best um, because the group was young, because, you know, millennials are uh, a, a different breed, like with a bunch of really seasoned veteran types who have, um, you know, seen it all before, done it all before. They, um, they might not have bought into it, but younger guys, um, who knows, they might be more open to these sorts of things. And, and that's certainly been said of some of the other cultural programs at Richmond. So the Brandon Ellis um, chapter that you're referring to and, and those sessions, the Triple H sessions, are where players would bare their souls and um, and really, you know, sometimes just break down in tears in front of the group sharing their, their personal stories. That just feels like a more uh, millennial kind of thing to me, something that... Um, that, yeah, the, the younger guys probably jumped on in a big way and maybe more senior guys wouldn't have if the, if the list age demographic had been skewed in a different direction. Another big part to the success for us this year is, is obviously Damien Hardwick and the changes he made to himself uh, from 2016. Given you were there for both years, what was the one change you think he made that stood out to you the most? Well, for me, sort of... Um, I mean, they say, you know, delegation and, um, and allowing um, players to be to be themselves. And there were things like him um, him encouraging people to sort of uh, oh, indulge their strengths, you know. He, he would always talk about the strengths this year and not the weaknesses of, of certain players and, um, and just the, the very notion of, of just playing. That was always written on the board before games, um, in, particularly in relation to our attack. He'd have it up there in quotation marks, just play. And he'd talk about playing on instinct and playing for the little kid that fell in love with the game, that sort of thing. Um, so there were all those sorts of changes. But for me, the most obvious one, I guess, it, it was the way he approached those pre-game speeches. So... A pre-game address from the coach, it, it doesn't actually happen five minutes before they go on the ground. Like, he doesn't rev them up and then they charge out onto the field ready to, to break down brick walls for him. It happens about an hour before the first bounce. And um, in the previous year, in 2016, um, Hardwick wanted venom, and he wanted it from the very beginning. I remember the, the first speech that I heard him make in a regular season game against Carlton in 2016. He just... I mean, it was spine-tingling stuff. He's a very good speaker, but it was 
it was more of a traditional sort of coaching speech where he really wants to rally them and he wants to get them pumped up and fired up and really really ready to step on top of the opposition and take them down and and he did that all the way throughout the year you know some, sometimes it verged more into anger because we were doing so poorly and he wanted a response um, but but that was definitely the style and then this year no it's complete opposite so he would walk into the room and he would tell some stupid dad joke and he would just have the rest of the he would have all of the players and all of the coaches kind of laughing and they'd instantly relax and you could see their body language they just sort of sit back in the the tiered kind of coaches briefing room there and they're all chilled out by it and then he uh he had this device this storytelling device where he put a a3 picture up on the wall before every game he'd, he'd print something out in color and have it laminated and it'd be sticking there and a player would have to turn it over and put it on the magnet board and then he'd just riff on that uh, on that image and tell a story and you know sometimes they were really stupid funny sort of stories like it'd be a picture of a honey badger and you'd be like what's that doing there and the story would be about how the honey badger is pound for pound the most sort of vicious animal on the planet and that you know attacks the underbelly and scraps and just goes for the throat and um, and that's what he wanted from players that day so that would be one of his stories but then uh he'd get philosophical as well he once had a photo of two wolves and it was something that he had seen on probably on the nat geo channel the a few nights before about a um a cherokee indian um kind of story about two wolves and um which wolf will win between them and one wolf represents hate and anger and he has bad teeth and he's a killer and one wolf is playful and there's there's sort of love and belief and other things in his heart and it's like which wolf will win and the you know Cherokee grandfather says the wolf that you feed and so he said he wanted to see the boys playing for one another playing for love and for pleasure so feed the good wolf that was his message for the game and, and yeah like i said he had one of those for every single game of the year including the finals um which he'd, and he'd obviously put a lot of thought into all of them and um again i just think it sort of relaxed the players and um took them out of the moment a little bit rather than maybe revving them up too much an entire hour before that first bounce Speaking of the finals and being relaxed, uh, from the outside looking in, it looked like the players were pretty relaxed the entire final series. Is that what it looked like and felt like within the club as well, whether it be a training? Um, I know you've obviously just said on game day they relaxed a bit from what Dimmer was doing, but was there a big focus from the, the coaches to make them just embrace it and feel relaxed during finals? Um, because you couldn't tell they were nervous at all. Yeah, yeah. And look... Uh I find it hard to imagine how it works at other clubs, but um, I mean, the moment that round uh, round 23 was over against um, the Saints, they were saying in the rooms after that game, all right, boys, the, the finals are coming. Um, there's going to be a lot of media coming at you. You're a big club in Melbourne. Embrace it. Just have fun with it. And everybody's got to do it. I remember Baum, uh, Neil Baum actually saying, you know what, we can't just leave the media to all but a handful of boys. So, look, if one of the one of the girls in the media department asks you to do an interview with so-and-so from this paper or that website, just do it. Share the spoils around and, um, and get it done. And I don't know, they just, they seemed relaxed in every meeting, like they were ready to approach the finals and have fun and 
I mean, I guess winning helps. You know, they've been playing really well and then they yeah. went in with a double chance, so that makes it easier to relax. And um, playing on their home deck in all three finals helped. But, but they kept um, reiterating that message about embracing it all the way up until the grand final and the line meetings where I remember in the defenders line meeting and the forwards line meeting, Alex Rance and Jack Rewalt were basically saying exactly the same thing. There's a big crowd out there. You know, that's the reality. Play for them. Have some fun. Embrace it. Um, You know, don't worry about it. Just put your focus on the process. The process has got us this far. Now let's run these bastards down. Let's let's tackle them, you know. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Odd question. You might not have heard him talking about it, but we all had a laugh at it as, as supporters. Adelaide's mm-hmm. power stance in the grand final. Was that ever mentioned anywhere along the line by the players, coaches, about what we were going to do and how? Or were we just more focused on doing our own thing? Because after the national anthem, it looked like a few of the boys were just smirking and laughing at it, which we all found quite amusing. That was great, wasn't it? That little bit of footage. Like <laughs> they've sort of only got one angle of it, but they really, they really look like they're laughing and happy. And it's no, I, up the I loved entire it day. It did, didn't it? Um, now, I, I never heard them mention it, but again, I wasn't in every single meeting, so that it's quite possible they did bring it up. What I do know is that they um, they came up with their idea um, to link arms. That didn't just happen. Um, it, it's something they were conscious of, and, and they would talk about it in the the line meetings beforehand. They'd say, "Look, in the in the anthem, you know, put an arm around a bloke, bit of touch, bit of love, you know." Um, feel we're a connected team. Let's feel connected out there the whole day, because um, you know connection was the the sort of the buzzword at Richmond all season long. So it didn't surprise me at all that they linked arms, um, and it just felt like what they were supposed to do. I think it was something that came naturally to them. There wasn't this directive. This is what we're going to do. We're going to all link, link arms. It was much more organic and real than that. And uh, you know, ultimately. <laughs> I mean, who's to say? Who's, who's to say how much impact it had? But uh, but I'm, it's I'm definitely. Sure, I'm sure they all like had it a WhatsApp. Today. I reckon they had a, all had a WhatsApp text going on just to take the piss out of the crows, just quietly. I um, would not be surprised. <laughs> the the book being the success it was, were you surprised with the amount of information you were given access to, and were there times that you were ever a little bit disappointed? Um, look, I wasn't surprised at the um, the info I was uh, given access to. I. Oh, every now and again, I was, um, I, I, yeah, I couldn't believe that uh, that it was being given to me. Like, for instance, I couldn't interview Dustin Martin. That was probably one of the, the disappointments of the book. Um, I don't know that he would have had anything really great to say, but it would have been nice to have his voice in the book more. But at the same time, I was really surprised at how open people were willing to be about him, other people in the club, because that's something that doesn't happen in... Um, in media at all, really. I mean, you you don't see many stories on Dustin Martin for a reason because nobody at Richmond is really willing to speak about him if he doesn't want it to happen. Um, and yet, I was able to talk to people about about the guy and um, and even the recruiters, like letting me see the their files on Dustin from when he was eighteen and what they were looking at then and what they observed in him. So. Um, that was great. I, I guess disappointment would probably be that I didn't get to interview every one of the players that I wanted to. Like, they definitely... Um, I would sort of request people, let's say a game. Let's say we'd won a game on the Saturday. Well, on the Sunday, 
I'd probably flick a text to Tim Livingston and say, hey, it'd be great if I could talk to so-and-so this week. And he might go, well, that guy's been, you know, he's a bit cooked. He's done a lot of interviews recently. Uh, be better if you did this guy. You want to talk to him instead? And, you know, invariably I'd say yes because I want to talk to them all in, in yeah. some way. But um, but I, I vividly remember, like, I did really want to interview Daniel Rioli at home in Bentley at the Hardwicks. I thought that would be great, like, sit sit in and have dinner with the Hardwicks and chat to Daniel Rioli. And, and that never happened because, you know, I don't think um, they really wanted the the book to go beyond inside the four walls at Richmond to, to start stretching into people's homes. So I completely appreciate that. But, mm-hmm. you know, other people I feel like I, I, I probably ask most weeks to chat to... Um, to nank the tank and um, and never really got a yes back on that uh, and that might have just been um, the coaching staff saying you know no because he's a lot of pressure on him and playing this lone role or it could have been that nank didn't want to have a chat <laughs> and that that'd be fine too so yeah um, no not many disappointments though to be honest like a few voices I would have liked to have had in the in the book more um, and I, I could barely ask for anything more in terms of access it's not like they were going to let me in on uh, Dustin Martin's contract negotiations so <laughs> everything else that I wanted I was um, I was given yeah and it was great you were never like at odds against the club with content going into the book I, I beg your pardon sorry so were you ever at, like, at odds against the club with like you wanting to put something into the book and they were a bit hesitant about it or, or everything was kind of all above board from the get go like they yeah Oh, look, to be honest, I, I would have liked more more swear words to be in there. These these boys, um, swearing is like breathing to yeah, them. It's um, context, really, isn't it? Yeah, particularly the coaches. Um, and sometimes, you know, I, I think a swear word is appropriate in a quote. It really, you know, it emphasises that um, that you know sometimes it uh, what they're saying means something. But they were basically sort of all taken out, and that's hundreds upon hundreds of curse words taken out. Um, what else? I guess there were there were probably you know several comments in the book um, that were taken out that were in regard to sort of um, disparagement of um, other teams or other players. So you know a coach might say something. You might be analysing the attack that Richmond were going to be playing against that week. So I'm just totally plucking a team at random, but let's say it's um, Collingwood's attack. Uh, well. You know, I'd be in the meeting when they're breaking down every one of those players in the Collingwood attack and saying what their major weaknesses are and what the flaws in their game are and how you can attack them, you know, whether it's sort of going after, um, you know, Darcy Moore by hitting him with your body hard because he's a young player and he won't stand up to that that much or wearing um, Alex Fasolo really closely and um, sprinting back to, to stop him sneaking out the back towards goal. All those sorts of... Um, things so uh that was seen as disparaging the opposition and possibly um giving the uh the team some ammunition an opponent ammunition and starting a rivalry so that sort of stuff was cut out Mm -hmm. um and it's sort of a i see why but it's also sort of a shame because it's a really good insight into how teams prepare for one another absolutely absolutely just got a couple more questions before i let you go i know you're pressed for time um at, at what point did you realise this book was going to be a huge success? I, I know you could never know based on you know sales and all that kind of stuff, but when putting it together, yeah, at what stage did you think, wow, this is going to be unbelievable? Um, I, I always was pretty confident it would be a really interesting book, um, but 
I, I think probably a lot of the success is just due to the to the flag. So I think um, probably when they beat Geelong, that sort of um, spelled that it would be a book that was of interest to people because really, really Richmond had charged their way up and then delivered at least in one final. So that part was important. And then just some of those access points, like the Brandon Ellis story and the Jack Rewald story, those are scenes that... You know, people have never been able to describe before in footy books. So those things sort of gave me confidence. And have you got any upcoming signing sessions anywhere if people want to get a book signed? Um, I don't, actually. They're sort of all gone by now, but um, I'm always happy if people want to reach out to me to, to organise to sign things. I've had people come into the office at The Age in the city and done those before. So if anybody wants a signature, don't hesitate to reach out. Oh, that's very good to know. And what's next for you? Is there any other projects on the cards? Um, not sure. We're sort of looking at a couple of options. Perhaps there's a footy bio. Um, there might be a, a season with a, a different team in a different sport, and I'm not really sure what those are yet. We're just sort of looking around at the moment. We just want to put um, yellow and black to bed and can't wait to see what the feedback is like for from all the people who are going to be opening their copy on Christmas Day. Oh, it's an absolute ripper idea for a Christmas present. I was lucky enough to get mine a bit <laughs> earlier than that, and like I said to you on Twitter, it's one of those books that once you start reading it, you really don't want to put it down. So congratulations on writing an amazing book. Um, yeah, an absolute pleasure to read, and thank you so much for coming onto the show and having a chat. No worries. Thanks very much, Chris. I appreciate um, you having me on, and uh, yeah, go Tigers. Yeah, absolutely, go Tigers. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Richmond Big Footy Tiger Cast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and YouTube so you can follow all the roasts and toasts, the reviews and previews, and all topics Richmond. Also, keep an ear out for our special episodes of interviews with past players. Go, Tigers.